You know, last week we started this series on things that Jesus uh, never said. And by the way, we are going to get into the book of Romans after this. And so if you're visiting with us, this is not our normal fare. We normally go through the Bible verse by verse. But uh, just wanted to do something different between Second Peter and Romans. And so we're doing this short series of things that Jesus never said. And we talked about last week. The reasons why it's important to know what Jesus actually said, we first of all said that Jesus' claims are too important to gloss over, uh, that Jesus deals with the prime issues of life. We also made the point that we don't want to lie up to ourselves, that, that integrity demands I be honest with myself, and that my life on earth and eternity hangs in the balance. And so if I'm wrong about what Jesus has said, because he's dealt with these prime issues of life, then that's just too high a price to pay. And so uh, it's, it's good to know <laughs> whether Jesus actually said or meant something or didn't. And we looked last week at the statement, love is love. And we made the point that this is essentially captured by the LGBTQ community, and that we surmise that Jesus not only didn't say it, but he was opposed to its meaning uh, that love is self-defining. Jesus had a very clear picture about love, and he contrasted it with the religious community, which often was way too strident about it, if you remember them wanting to stone, you know, the adulterous lady. But he also contrasted it with the more secular community that was very permissive about the idea of love. Remember, he told the lady, go and sin no more. Now, I mentioned last week that it's very important for us to distinguish that people in the LGBTQ community are not our enemy, not at all. We recognize that everybody's made in the image of God, uh, that they're deserving of respect, and I realized after thinking about it that I'm not sure I made this point enough, and I want to take this a step further, that with a congregation this size, odds are that we have people that are struggling with same-sex attraction. And it might be a conclusion of some of these folks that we're not a safe place because we embrace a biblical ethic. But same-sex attraction is not deserving of some special uh, condemnation and judgment different from those who struggle with, let's say, pornography or having an affair and, you know, want to get their lives aligned with, uh, with a biblical ethic. As a church, every one of us have sinned, right? Uh, I won't get an amen because I don't need to, because it's true, all right? And we want to be a hospital to help in any way we can with, with whatever people are struggling with. And we want all to experience love to the fullest and human flourishing. And so we want to seek a church that is honest and not to put certain sins in kind of a special condemnation section while we whitewash our own problems, okay? So with that said... We want to move on to our next saying today. 
Uh, in L.A. recently, there was a huge billboard that said, we the youth live your truth. You must live your truth. Now, if you haven't espoused those exact words, then maybe you're more familiar with a similar phrase that you have to be true to yourself. It's an attempt to embrace authenticity. Uh, and by doing so, it makes self the standard. In other words, if I'm authentic and expressing my true feelings, I've achieved the ultimate goal. Is that the way the world works? I mean, is there a way that facts and truth confront us, even though we might believe that? The kissing cousin of this mantra is follow your heart. It conveys the idea that truth has no relationship to objective reality, but it's subjective to individual tastes and feelings. Philosophers call this area epistemology or, or a study of truth. Uh, in Shakespeare's play, Hamlet, Polonius advises his son, um, Laertes, to these words. He said, this above all, to thy own self be true. Richard Bach, the American writer, said, your only ob obligation in any lifetime is to be true to yourself. And then from that well-known theologian, Dr. Seuss, from the book, Happy Birthday to You, says, today you are you, that is truer than true. There is no one alive who is youer than you. So, you know, it's, it's just that kind of idea. Uh, just embrace yourself, be true to yourself. David Brooks, author and columnist for New York Times, said this, Commencement speakers are always telling young people to follow their passions. Be true to yourself. This is a vision of life that begins with self and ends with self. But people on the road to character growth do not find their vocations by asking, what do I want from life? They ask, what is life asking of me? How can I match my intrinsic talent with one of the world's deepest needs? End quote. I think Brooks puts his finger on one of the greatest challenges here. If you adopt this kind of mantra, it starts with self and it ends with self. Now listen, if self were king or God, that may be fine. But it seems in the world we live in that we're subject to a reality or facts outside of ourselves. I mean, when you drove to church this morning, I'm assuming all of you obeyed the traffic lights and the stop signs so that you could arrive here in one piece. Uh, when you eat a mushroom out in the wild, it's important to know the facts between what kind are edible and what kind are actually poisonous. When we choose a mate, we expect to know the truth of the character of that person and a track record to match. 
One might say, okay, short, I get it. But listen, all those examples are in the material world. But you're a pastor, and I know you're going to be talking about immaterial stuff like morals and truth outside ourselves about religion, and that's not material. So even if I concede that there's truth in the material world, there's not truth in the other, in the immaterial world. Well, philosophers have dealt with this issue, and I don't want to you know, get sidetracked about a bunch of philosophy, but I think it deserves at least looking at the options that people present and then asking ourselves, do those really work? Uh, so I don't think this is irrelevant information, but let me present some of the options. First is relativism. Relativism says truth is only what is true to a, a particular culture or, or individual, never extends beyond that. It denies that truth is objective or absolute or something factual outside ourself, okay? Meaning there's no way that truth could be the same from one culture to the next. It's just true for that culture. And then there's postmodernism. It says truth cannot be known outside your own tribe, even if it hits you in the face. And the reason is is because every culture is stuck with their own bias. And we have to overcome that bias somehow, some way. They recommend just deconstructing everything. But here's a question I have to ask. If I'm aware that people have a bias, how can you know that unless you know what the truth is? Bias wouldn't make sense unless there was a world of truth. <laughs> I was talking to one of our members this week who's a lawyer, and he was saying how many times how unreliable eyewitness or firsthand testimony can be because people will claim they saw or heard something, but their bias clouds their ability to often recall that in an objective manner. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell has talked about this in his podcast, and uh, you've probably read about some of these studies. And many of us have had the experience of uh, people thinking you said something you never said, or you hearing something that you thought somebody said that they never said. Now, none of us, I think, denies that bias exists, but my point is, we know it exists because truth is a reality. Subjectivism says that truth doesn't go beyond how an individual feels. So what I feel is true for me. And people will often opt for this, okay? And yet, is it not true that our human experience has a whole range of, uh, of emotions from irrational fears and infatuations. All of us experience this. And those can be unrelated to the facts. I mean, how many times have you been wrong about the feeling you get about a person in a first impression? I mean, how we feel about a situation may not align with what is true or objective or even moral. Take 9-11, for instance. Some people were dancing 
in the streets when it occurred. And others were mourning. Was destruction of over 2,000 lives a truly joyous event? Or was it evil and regrettable? What subjectivism says, that both are true at the same time. True for the mourners, true for the celebrants. Now, if subjectivism were accurate, all crimes could be reduced to the perpetrator just practicing his own truth. But we would be in a constant state of moral chaos if that were the case. I submit to you with all three of these, relativism, postmodernism, and subjectivism, that is not the world we live in. Because everyone who espouses that, and I don't think I'm being hyperbolic by saying everyone, still make absolute, universal truth claims. Okay? And again, these are about immaterial things. For instance, the Me Too movement was born out of people who genuinely believed it was wrong to practice sexual harassment. Now, obviously, I don't disagree with that assessment. But the problem is, many of these same people proclaim relativism or postmodernism as their guide. How can you make an objective moral statement when your ethical system says it doesn't exist in any objective way? People intuitively believe that racism is wrong in any country. And I would say that is right. But how can you make an objective moral statement about racism and believe that moral standards do not exist across different cultures, at least in the, in the same way, in a universal sense? You see, these brief examples, I think, just show that we actually live in a moral universe, one that God has made and atheists and theists alike cannot escape. And yet we have many who want to get rid of what they deem as the shackles of religion, like what Nietzsche would say, or the shackles of morality or, or truth. Listen to Thomas Nagel, professor of philosophy, New York University. Quote, in speaking of the fear of religion, I don't mean to refer to the entirely reasonable hostility towards certain established religions in virtue of their objectionable moral doctrines, social policies, and political influence. Nor am I referring to the association of many religious beliefs uh, with superstition and the acceptance of evident empirical falsehoods. I'm talking about something much deeper, namely the fear of religion itself. I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't that I don't believe in God and naturally hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. 
I don't want the universe to be like that. End quote. I appreciate his honesty. And it's a bold admission that at the heart of rejecting we live in a moral universe created by God that whether you believe it or not, that we, we see within this universe a DNA of moral laws are within the heart of every man. I don't want a universe like that, but that's the one we're in. Peter, who was addressing a group that were infiltrating the church and were doing some wrong-headed teaching, said this, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Paraphrase, they will do what they want to do without interference. They will have sex with whoever they want, whenever they want, however many times they want, without any encumbrance from a moral law or truth. Now, my dear friends, before we start pointing fingers, I want to be quick to add that part of being a human being is that we have a flesh component, not just the body, but the, the, the Bible speaks of the flesh in two different ways. It speaks of the body, but it also speaks of a, a part of us that lives with a rebellion. You see this in Galatians 5, where it talks about walking by the flesh or walking by the spirit. And by the flesh means towards my selfish desires with just what I want, and that's in rebellion to God. So it rebels against moral authority. It wants things its own way. That's the flesh, and all of us have that, okay? John even takes it a step further in 1 John. For those who say they never sin, they lie, even as a Christian. Romans 8 says this, For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. He's not saying you don't have a body. He's saying you're not operating with the flesh as your central part of you. But now as a Christian with Christ in you, that's really who you are and not just the flesh. The flesh takes a secondary role. But in the spirit, if in fact the flesh of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of God does not belong to him. So to say that we live our truth. And our truth is defined by our authentic passions or self is a way really to wrap the flesh in a pretty bow. But it's still flesh 
and it's still hostile to God. It is the spirit in us and not our flesh that accompanies truth. The spirit testifies of the person of Christ and the truth that Christ embodied that we have in the scripture. Over 2,000 years ago, Pilate was thrust in the middle of a conflict between the Jews and Jesus. And in the midst of the conversation that Pilate was having with Jesus, he asked this pertinent question, what is truth? What is truth? Now, if there was ever, and I would submit there's only one person who could answer it this way. Now, Jesus didn't use these words, but if Jesus would have said, I'm truth and I have to live my truth, that would have made sense. (laughs) Okay? Because he, in fact, embodied truth. And no other human could make that claim. John wrote, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And then we read in John 14, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. If you want to know the Father, if you want to know what the Father is like, look at me. You got to come through me. But let me suggest that truth is more than just an accumulation of facts. The truth is consistent with the character and the teaching of Christ. Whatever it is, it's got to be at least that. And when writing about his eyewitness accounts of Jesus, John affirms that more than just the facts of miracles and healings and resurrection, and those are all important to know. Instead, I think he speaks about the conclusions, or what I might even say, the faith that comes as a result of that. John wrote in 1 John 1, that which was from the beginning which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we've seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we've seen and heard we proclaim um, also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. Now listen, if I were on a jury and I'm trying to reach the truth about a murder, I am given the task of deciding whether the defendant did it or not, okay? Now, I can reiterate that there's a dead body. I can look at the facts of what the murder weapon was, but the truth is more than these facts. Who did it and why? I've got to reach a conclusion. And so we have to do the same with Jesus. You can't just repeat the facts. Even the demons know the facts. 
but we have to reach a conclusion. And that's what faith is. My friends, when we're convinced of the truth of Christ, it leads us to faith in our dependence upon Christ. We don't just let the facts sit there. Faith acts on the facts. Christ then becomes our trust, our hope. John was so impressed by Jesus, so convinced of the truthfulness of the gospel and God's ability to bring new life, to forgive forgive us of sins, that he testifies and proclaims this truth. John says, I not only saw Jesus, but I understood what I was looking at. I not only heard about Jesus, but I was understanding what I heard. I not only touched Jesus, but I realized with careful examination what it meant. My eyes, my ears, my fingers all affirmed the reality of the physical and spiritual nature of Jesus. I may not have understood it all, may not have understood every application, but I was getting it. These were actual discerning impressions and beliefs, not an optical illusion or hallucination. And the reaction to all that was not, huh, that's interesting. No. Translation could be read at the end of verse 2 that we, and this it's out of 1 John 1, that which we gazed upon was a spectacle, a phenomenon. John and the apostles contemplated what they witnessed, and they were in awe of Jesus Christ. And he writes later about the truth of his conclusion. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has the life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have the life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Clearly, the truth that John spoke of was wrapped up in right conclusions about Jesus Christ. And the result is giving our very lives to Jesus by faith that we can enjoy eternal life. Eternal life means more than just life after death, but the quality of life now, befitting of a life in Christ. So all those in Christ are enjoying eternal life now. It's a state of the quality of our life. You see, to to live your truth or to live according to your desires or passions you want, it has no bearing on what is actually moral or objectively true or even good. One of the ploys that the Allies used during World War II was when they descended into the French countryside, they used lifelike dummies stuffed with sand and straw, and they were attached 
to parachutes, and they had firecrackers built into them so that they exploded as they hit the ground or were fired upon. Hundreds of these dummies were dropped simultaneously in various locations in order to draw German fire. And many of the Germans spent valuable ammunition on these soldiers descending by parachute, not realizing they were really shooting at dummies. The actual attack was taking place while these, in another location while these mock paratroopers were exhausting the arsenal and artillery of the German attack. See, those who live thinking, they encompass truth, and all they need is to fulfill their passions to live a complete life, are wasting life and energy of soul and mind on distractions away from where abundant life resides. Proverbs 12, 15 says, the way of fools seems right to them. And it's foolish to say, I have to live my truth. Our discussion today is about differentiating between what is true and what is false. Many are drunk on their own importance, thinking they have more insight, more perspective than their creator. Winston Churchill put it in these words, the most valuable thing in the world is the truth. In fact, it is so valuable that it is often defended by a bodyguard of lies. Huh? See, Churchill made those remarks while addressing a group about spy work amongst the Nazis. He was making reference to deception. However, he implies that truth is such a precious commodity that it should be zealously guarded lest it fall into the wrong hands. We have to take great care in guarding what Jesus has actually said and what the Word of God is declaring. When Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. When I was a student at the Moody Bible Institute in the 70s in Chicago, I lived in a 19-story dorm called Colbertson Hall. And when you walk through the portico on the first floor of this building, there at the cornerstone were these words in stone. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Every day I'd see that. That is our motto. I want to handle truth well, and we are to handle truth well in assimilating it into our own life and the way we think. You know, we're, in our culture, we're fed with the notion that if you claim you have truth, 
know, that, that you're arrogant. Um, I think the question is better asked, what is the real state of reality? Is there a God or not? And if there is, hasn't that God created a moral universe, one where truth actually exists? And if there's good evidence for this, then what is more arrogant to affirm what there is or to deny it in the face of the evidence? Many define faith as the ability to believe something when you have no facts. I submit to you instead that I think our faith can be reasonable. Faith can affirm reality how things actually are. See, the Christian never has to, you know, acquiesce to science, real science, in a way that says it's not consistent with the truth. No. I can embrace science. This world, though, is not the kind where I can just make up my own truth. And scientists do that, and so do religionists. And sadly, sometimes so do Christians. Numbers 32.23 provides an ominous reminder that we cannot escape the moral order of the world we live in. It says this, be sure your sin will find you out. <laughs> Bernie Madoff orchestrated one of the largest Ponzi schemes in history, lying to investors about their returns while using new investors' money to pay off earlier investors. The truth came out, and he was convicted. Lance Armstrong lied about his use of performance enhancing drugs, even after winning multiple Tour de France titles. The truth was found out, and Armstrong paid a heavy price with loss of sponsorships and loss of his reputation. Brian Williams was a respected NBC news anchor who fabricated details as a journalist. Um, he talked about a helicopter incident that he reported on in Iraq. And many of the details were not true. It damaged his credibility as a journalist. See, the truth confronted these men in a world that seeks to obfuscate, deny, or twist the truth. But they all learned you cannot live your own truth. We live in a world where truth will find you out. Let us therefore live by upholding light to the one who's called the truth and the one who provides us security, significance, and hope. That's our truth. That's who he is. That's what I'm going to grab. Let's pray.